The following is sponsored by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals Giving Tuesday, November 29th. Listen for more at the conclusion of today's podcast. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. You are listening to Mortification of Spin. My name is Todd Pruitt. I'm pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and I'm joined, as always, by Carl Truman, uh, professor at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania. Carl, it's uh, it's great to see you. Um, I, I want to say, any guest who comes on Mortification of Spin, you know, has to have a little bit bit of bravery, you know, because they they need to understand they're risking their reputation a little bit. There will be some people in the Presbyterian church in America who may not like them anymore, but others who will like them a lot. So it's kind of a, you know, you give and take a little bit there, but uh, it's especially, I'm, I'm especially encouraged when a woman will come on with two guys who aren't always incredibly sensitive and, you know, you've, you've got to have some thick skin because of how kind of uh, mean spirited we are uh, periodically. Right, Carl? I mean, Yeah, I mean, we're we're rather insensitive. We're kind of oafish, right? Well, I'm I'm English, so I'm emotionally two-dimensional. This is true. And I'm in the OPC, which means I only need to connect with two emotions anyway, uh, righteous indignation and anger. I like uh, that. Both of which I've sort of mastered over the years. That's awesome. Well, I'm in the PCA, so nuance is the name of the game, and I'm not always good at that. But um, we are uh, happy that uh, Lisa Childers has... um, decided to, to take the risk and come on Mortification of Spin um, with us. Now, some of you immediately know the name Elisa Childers. Uh, she's an author and speaker and has, and I'm thankful for this, has been um, getting uh, attention. We like it when people who are writing really helpful materials uh, get attention. And uh, uh, Elisa's material, her books and um uh, on you, you can find her online, um, speaking at various locations. And I, I've just really been encouraged by her presence. I've been encouraged by the content of what she's producing. And um, her latest book is called Live Your Truth and Other Lies, Exposing Popular Deceptions That Make Us Anxious, Exhausted, and Self-Obsessed. And um, I was into part of it last night and underlining sections of it that resonated so strongly with me in terms of a lot of conversations um, I have and have had with with folks for years. And unfortunately, a lot of things that are all too common uh, among Christians. But before we get into that, Alisa, the main reason we had you on is because Carl dug something up. And really, we've we've got to know more about this. Carl, would you, would you tell us um, this, this information yeah. that you have discovered? Well, I heard this rumor that Elisa was actually part of the Spice Girls. So I did a bit of digging. <laughs> yes. She was not a Spice Girl, but one of my former research assistants tells me, oh, I had an Elisa Childers album. Uh, Zoe Girl. Absolutely. Elisa, well, 
Was Zoe Girl, were they like the Christian Spice Girls or what? Can you explain to our audience? (laughs) They were exactly the Christian Spice Girls. In fact, when (laughs) when we first got together, I remember our record label showing us various videos of British teen girl groups that we were just going to be emulating and kind of bringing a Christian message in through the music. And Spice Girls was one of those. So it's not even, uh, I mean, it's it's legitimately like we were the Christian <laughs> <Wow>. Spice Girls. <laughs> did you have nicknames like Sporty and Baby Scary? And scary? Yeah. Were you scared? Were you Scary Girl? Or? <laughs> <laughs> we, we didn't have official nicknames, but mm-hmm. I was in within the group. I was called Mama Zoe. And then we had uh, Chrissy, who was baby Zoe. We both kind of, you know, parented her because she was a brand new Christian when Zoe Girl first got together. And then that only left Kristen with like Daddy Zoe. So we always would just jokingly call her Daddy Zoe because there was just nothing left. So very progressive of you as well. I know. And now today nobody would bat an eye at that. So, you know. Right. Yeah. Well, um, Elisa, again, thanks so much for for being on with us. And in all seriousness, um, you've been providing work that's, that I'm pleased as a pastor to be able to put in the hands of people. Um, and because I know that, uh, it's discerning stuff and it, and it will help, um, them think through, uh, not only common objections to Christianity, but common, um, misguided notions that oftentimes Christians have. And I wonder, you know, given, given the, the work that you do, um, and the kind of subjects you tackle, I wonder if you would just tell our, our audience, some of our folks know this already, but some of our folks, might be new to you and just tell them a little bit about kind of how you got here, mm-hmm. how, how these um, uh, uh, discernment issues, apologetic issues became so near and dear to your heart. Well, this is not something I ever saw myself doing. I've been a flaky artist my whole life. In fact, I didn't even know that there was this robust intellectual case for Christianity out there. I was pretty much like a Bible girl. I loved Jesus as far back as I can remember, and I loved the Bible always. And so it really wasn't until after Zoe Girl came off the road and my husband and I kind of put down roots in a church here right in the heart of the Bible Belt in Middle Tennessee. And uh, about eight months after we started attending there, the pastor of the church invited me to be a part of a smaller group that he compared to seminary. He said, Hmm. we're going to dive really deep. And after four years, you'll come out with a seminary level education. Well, within the context of that class, he revealed to us that he was actually an agnostic and uh, had deconstructed. And so, he really picked apart, explained away, and he and many other people in my class walked away from core historic beliefs of Christianity. Years later, the church would go on to rebrand itself as a progressive Christian community. So, by the time we left the church, there were so many seeds of doubt that were sown in my own heart that it propelled me into a faith crisis that uh, really led me, I think, to the edge of maybe agnosticism. I never fully lost my faith, but it was extremely injured. And so, I cried out to God, and He led me to the study of apologetics. And I, I do have to tell you guys that I am so thrilled to be on with you, because in the rebuilding process of my faith many years ago, uh, I discovered the Mortification of Spin podcast and spent many, many hours walking around my neighborhood listening to you guys. And so you were a huge part of that rebuild for me. And so I'm really thankful for both of you. Well, that's very kind. Praise the Lord. We helped somebody. I hope yeah. I listened to that. We actually helped somebody. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's very, very gratifying to hear. It's very kind. 
One of the things I loved about your book, Elisa, when I picked it up, was the, the chapter Trousers. And that got my attention because as an <laughs> English guy, I do not expect Americans to be familiar with the term trousers. Tell us, yep. what, you're doing, tell us what you're doing in that chapter. I think this, one of the things I would say about this book is it's fun as well as being mm -hmm. serious. Mm -hmm. It's a book that you could pick up. The chapters are short. You can read them on a commute to work. You could read them when you're waiting for five minutes in a doctor's surgery or something. Uh, tell us uh, what you what you do in that chapter on trousers. Well, I start with the story of when Zoe Girl was first just brand new. Our album was just coming out. And so they flew me, our record label flew me to England to participate in a release event for a British Christian band over uh, in the UK. And so it was this band was like it, it was like one of my just foundational experiences as a Christian, just formationally as you just their songs and everything. I just love this band. So I was really nervous to meet them. And so when I just kind of came face to face with the lead singer, I just got really nervous and flustered and I just blurted out, uh, hey, I like your pants, you know, and I didn't know, <laughs> of course, that pants mean underwear. So, you know, the book kind of opens with me, uh, you know, harassing my favorite Christian singer. And then I say, you know, obviously, I'm gonna have to move to Canada and quit my job now. <laughs> but the point I make there is that language really matters. It really matters that we define the terms we're using, that we understand what other people are meaning when they're using certain words, and also just kind of the postmodern influence of the redefinition of words and sort of that subjective approach to language where uh, truth is sort of formed uh, on the inside and language is, you know, going back, of course, to people like Jacques Derrida, uh, you know, where language really isn't seen as a way to be able to communicate uh, absolute yeah. truth. Yeah. And so our culture has sort of slipped into relativism. And uh, so I, I kind of go there through that story of uh, harassing my favorite Christian singer. <laughs> yeah, It is um, interesting how language which was designed for clear communication and for loving and appropriate relationships has come by and large to function exactly, or to be seen to be function in exactly the opposite way. It's now instinctively seen as manipulative and abusive. And uh, mm. I remember- An exercise of power. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a Madonna, I can't remember which Madonna song it is. I'm not a Madonna aficionado, but there's a great line in one of her songs, uh, words are meaningless particularly sentences, and it sort of <laughs> captures the whole ethos of, 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 the, of the world. So, yeah, it's not very often that you find a very simple, straightforward uh, account of problems with modern language, but I thought that chapter uh, did a great job, Elisa. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm of course, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of anybody who quotes uh, Cormac McCarthy um, in the Who's written a couple of new books, books, apparently, by the they're way. They're coming so, out twin, this week, twin I think. Companions, yes. yeah, companion yeah. volumes are, are coming out. Yeah, yeah. it's going to be interesting. When I opened to your um, table of contents, I skimmed it and I and I saw um, chapter six because of that. The, 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 the chapter is titled Cheerleader, but under it is Authenticity is Everything. And I immediately went there and that was the first thing I read. I, I think because... You know, we, we see this term authenticity. You, wanna, you know, I just want to be authentic. You know, I just want to be authentic. Is or or I love that person because they're authentic, and it becomes a mask for sin, oftentimes, or a, an excuse for being a horse's rear end or whatever. If you can cover something by saying, "Well, that's just authentic," or "I'm just being my authentic self," tell me a little bit about first of all how people un, how are they understanding authenticity, and and the role that this understanding of authenticity has now taken on. You know, oftentimes among 
Christians and 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 what's problematic about it that you see? Yeah, well, I think it's, you know, the way I see it is that it it seems to be built upon an acceptance of the idea that especially when it comes to something like religion and morality, objective truth doesn't exist in those mm-hmm. two categories for most people in our culture, I think. So that's something you create yourself. Yeah. And so according to culture, it seems like your job as a human being is to search inside of yourself, do some really good introspection, maybe some meditation, dig down inside of yourself and identify what your deepest desires are. And in particular, mm-hmm. your maybe your sexual desires or something like that. And then rather than view those desires as something that needs to come under the the submission of absolute truth about what would be actually right or wrong. You're supposed to name those desires. You're supposed to uh, proclaim them and expect everybody else to affirm those things about you, which really is the opposite of what the Bible tells us about the kind of thing we even are and and what mm-hmm. fixes what's broken. Because according to scripture, according to the Christian worldview, if we look inside of ourselves and we identify what our deepest desires are, very often those desires are going to be in conflict with what uh, the Bible says is right and wrong. Mm-hmm. And so the biblical answer would be to repent, right? To change, to turn from those things, to be transformed, to be reconciled. There's something in us that's broken that needs to be fixed. But according to culture, it's sort of the opposite. Once you identify those desires, it's actually the right and wrong that mm-hmm. you are to toss out or, or any kind of idea that those things would be fixed. And so uh, you, you find that it operates from just an entirely different worldview. And even again, with words, because classically, of course, authenticity just kind of means being genuine, not being fake, right? And I think that's great. I think we should be genuine and authentic with each other as Christians and what we're struggling with and how we can pray for each other and all those things. But that just isn't what the world is talking about when it's talking about living your true authentic self. It Mm -hmm. just means lining up your desires with how you actually live out your life. Mm -hmm. And uh, that can have devastating effects, not just spiritually in the scope of eternity, but even in the practical realm, just hurting the people around us and and ourselves as well in the process. Mm -hmm. It's interesting in in some of the debate over revoice and um, so-called side B homosexuality, I have heard authenticity appealed to precisely as a, well, you know, I'm just being authentic with this. Well, okay, um, back to your most obvious definition, which, okay, if, you know, being honest, hey, that's good. L- definitely. Let's be honest if this is a struggle with you. But unfortunately, the way I'm hearing it, authenticity invoked is not, I want to be honest about a sin I need to confess and and really repent of. It's It almost becomes, it's used sort of like a spiritual Kevlar um, body armor. Well, um, uh, I'm I'm being authentic about this. And suddenly that is supposed to protect me from, you know, biblical critique of this. Yeah. You know, I've said it, so I'm being authentic. So discussion's over almost. Right. Yeah. Well, and yeah, and that has to do with identity really too, mm-hmm. because there's really no other sin struggle that I can think of where people would be compelled to actually claim that as their identity while at the same time saying, well, I'm not going to act on it or, or something along mm-hmm. those lines, but I'm going to claim that as my deepest identity. I mean, that's mm-hmm. uh, that goes with culture's definition of authenticity, which is to identify your deepest desires as who you really are. I mean, yeah. Carl's book, <laughs> Carl can explain this probably better than I can with it's his uh, book. And then, of course, mm-hmm. the the easier version that that I found very helpful. <laughs> Thank you for that, Carl, for, for us dummies <laughs> out here. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was so eye-opening even just to see the history of how we even got here. Uh, Because I'm looking around at these pop-level influencers who have even up to millions of 
followers in some cases that are saying the most ridiculous things, telling their followers, you know, go get a divorce if you're not totally fulfilled in your marriage or if you have a sexual desire that goes against the way you think you should live in this moment, you need to get rid of that should and just live your truth. And so we have a, a deeply confused and chaotic culture, I think, largely because of these definitions of words and also just how we see what our identity actually is. Yeah, it, it's the it's the notion that if I feel something or experience something, then it should be beyond critique. There There is a legitimizing of whatever feeling I have. And my thing is, man, I have all kinds of feelings that need to be critiqued. I have all kinds of feelings and thoughts and motives um, that absolutely need to be critiqued. Um, but uh, again, it, it's now authenticity has become kind of armor against that. Um, and it goes because it's, it's who I am. It's not just a, an impulse that I have. And, and, and as you said, Carl's work has really helped to expose this. It's not just this thing I do or this feeling I have. It's, it's who I am. And how dare you, you know, kind of bring that under the light of, of critique. Yeah. Yeah. We all know intuitively that the the notion of authenticity is ultimately profoundly limited, if not wrong. And I use the example in class when I'm talking to students about this. And see, you know, the most authentic people in the United States, they're actually all in prison. We call them serial killings <laughs> because they act on their impulses. Right. They act right. on their impulses. And we know that's wrong mm. because people get seriously damaged. Well, Let's pull back from that and say, okay, so where do you draw the line on acting on your inner impulses? And when you get students to think along those times, it begins to go, oh, yeah, actually, you know, maybe if a guy's married and he's in a hotel bar late one night on a business trip and he feels attracted to the woman next to him, maybe he shouldn't act on that impulse. Maybe inauthenticity <laughs> is, is what is needed there because we're actually the people we are in the social relations we have. Mm-hmm. not in the desires that arise from, from inside. And, and that brings me to another part of your book. I think it's the chapter Jukebox, uh, Elisa, when you talk about how the notion of love has really been evacuated. And I think a lot of what you were saying so far, love is, the way we think about love is the great example of how uh, a notion's been, been disemboweled. I think I have a friend at the moment who's caring for his wife, uh, who is, she has aphasia and she is declining into her own world, really. And I, again, when I'm talking to the students, I, I make the point that when you get married, it's easy to love your wife on the wedding day. Everything's great. But real love is perhaps only revealed in the hard places. And I think it, that, that's sort of what you're getting at, I think, in, in your book when you talk about love, is it not? Right. Well, again, just kind of comparing some of these pop level influencers and how they're describing love versus what the Bible says about love. So in so many of these social media accounts that we deal with, and even some of the books that we deal with in the book, the message is basically that if if you are going to be a loving person, if you're going to love me, you have to affirm everything that I think is right. You have to affirm every behavior I wish to indulge in. You have to affirm and even celebrate something, even if you disagree with it. And uh, that is not biblical love. Of course, love is one of God's attributes. It's literally, it's who he is. We have a word to describe who he is. And one of those words is the word love. And of course, Paul fleshes this out for us in 1 Corinthians 13 with the famous passage we're all probably familiar with that says, 
love is patient, love is kind. But it goes on to say, love cannot rejoice in wrongdoing. And then it connects love with truth. It says love cannot or love rejoices in the truth. I mean, think if we really were to think about that in comparison to how our culture approaches the word love, it's such a stark difference. Love rejoices in the truth and actually can't rejoice in wrongdoing. So according to the Bible, it's actually unloving for me to affirm something about somebody else that would be sinful, uh, whether it be a sinful identity category or a sinful behavior. It would be unloving of me to uh, affirm or celebrate something about them that is harmful to them based on an objective understanding of what God calls right and wrong. And so you end up with these completely opposite definitions. That's the, the crazy thing to me about some of these words is that they're not just being twisted a little bit, mm-hmm. but they're actually being redefined to mean the opposite. Like, mm-hmm. for example, the word tolerance, you know, classically meant you disagree with somebody, but you respect their right to have their opinion. Whereas now when people use the word tolerance, it's actually the most intolerant people who use that word because it means total obedience to the cultural norm on whatever that might be. And that's where we get cancel culture and so much of this other stuff that kind of just uh, relativizes truth and, uh, and, and then uses words, almost weaponizes these words like love and tolerance to, to use them as weapons against people to get them to submit really to what you want to do and think and behave like. Yeah. And so, you know, in that way, you know, we say that love makes proper judgments for the sake of the ones we love. We're willing to say this is good and this will be for your good. And then, and then this thing is really bad for you. Like, and and I think most people almost instinctually understand that. And particularly anybody who has kids, unless they're just completely goofed up, you know, they understand that the object, the, the person we love, the object of our love, there are times we have to say, no, this isn't right. This is for your, you know, this is bad for you, that sort of thing. And yet, you know, one of the things that that, that interests me about this, because I, I um, uh, the things that you are addressing here um, are, and you know, this are very much not just out there, but they are in here as well. We see this stuff in evangelical culture. We We hear these things being said by Christians. I was reading a an old article the other day from 1999 that was published in Christianity Today by a professor of one of the most well-known Christian universities in the world. And he lamented in that article in 1999 that we're getting, you know, the best young people from conservative Christian churches are coming and they don't know anything about the Bible, but they're influenced by the culture instead. That was in 1999. So, you know, it's exponentially worse than that now. And Mm. what do you, what do you, what would you attribute that to, primarily in terms of the sort of battle we're having to fight now for the minds of of young people what, what do you think kind of the primary culprits are mm. well i think on a on a base level it's two things uh it's it's the relativization of truth it's the rede- redefining truth to be not something that corresponds with reality but something you create out of your own desires and your own identification of who you are But also that is even built upon, I think, a cultural belief that humans are inherently good. In fact, I think that's the big one. Mm -hmm. Uh, I tell people, you know, when you're going to share the gospel today, right now in 2022, one of the most difficult obstacles, it used to be maybe you had to do some apologetics or clear some, and you still do, I'm sure, in certain cases. Mm -hmm. But you have to convince people they're sinners because every message, it seems, that's being pumped at us through Netflix and all these social media platforms, and especially in the 
deconstruction uh, space online on TikTok and Instagram, which I'm writing a book on deconstruction right now. So I'm in that world all the time. Mm-hmm. And it is just the prevalent message that anybody who tells you you're a sinner, they are toxic, they're oppressing you. Um, you need to heal from that trauma of being told that you are inherently sinful. And you need to just realize that you have this core of goodness. And I think that if you put those two things together, the idea that we're inherently good and that truth can be sort of reframed or, you know, defined according to your own introspection. Mm-hmm. I mean, then I think you just have this explosion of, right. of what we see happening, even in the church. And, and it's, it's interesting how much that even gets into the church, because a lot of the authors that I'm interacting with in my book started out as Christian mommy bloggers. They started out as uh, Christian authors. Even uh, one had books published through Southern Baptist Lifeway, and -hmm. they're completely off the rails now theologically, but still still maintain that word Christian. And I think that is what's so confusing, especially for a lot of young people who are trying to figure out, you know, how do I make my faith my own? What is Christianity? And they have all these voices that are telling them all these different things. Just one thought I had as you were sharing that when I was a brand new youth minister in 1990, 91, 92, I I remember, and I reflect on this a lot. I didn't have to convince kids that they were sinners. Mm. That's changed now. I mean, just that much of a fundamental shift has happened. I never had a kid argue with me in the early 1990s over the issue of whether or not they were sinners. All of that's out the window now. Well, we've come to the end of our time, but it's been great having you with us, uh, Elisa. Thank you for spending time with us today. And we do want to commend your book to our listeners, Live Your Truth and Other Lies, Exposing Popular Deceptions That Make Us Anxious, Exhausted, and Self-Obsessed. It's published by Tyndale Momentum Press. If you visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, you can enter for a chance to win a free copy there. And while you're visiting our website, please check out the other Alliance resources. And if you feel so led, please make a donation. We are a donor-run, donor-led, donor-funded podcast. All that remains for you now is to thank Elisa once again for being on the program. It's great to have a a, a Christian Spice Girl uh, join us. (laughs) This is a first for us. Yeah. You said you were Mama Girl, I think. Mama Zoe. Mama Zoe. 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 (laughs) It was great to have Mama Zoe with us. Uh, We would also recommend that you look up Zoe Girl online and see what you can find out there. Otherwise, we look forward to being with you all next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. On Tuesday, November 29th, 
members and friends of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals will come together for 24 hours of giving, supporting the amazing work accomplished all year long through reformed events, broadcasts, and publishing. Will you join us? Alliance members have a global impact, sharing the gospel and encouraging and equipping the church worldwide. They're vital ministry partners, bringing biblical truth, sound scriptural teaching, and true hope to a world in desperate need to hear the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. We're excited to announce that all gifts on November 29th will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000 thanks to a generous family foundation. Prayerfully consider joining us November 29th for this exciting opportunity. Visit AllianceNet.org slash giving dash Tuesday for more information. That's AllianceNet.org slash giving dash Tuesday. And thank you.